Hi, I'm Meredith Roden, and I'm the host of the Hatchers weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. This week on Getting to the Bottom of It, I'm here with Leah DeGroat, the Metro Editor, to talk about a topic that's very concerning to students and has been very discussed over the last couple of years, food insecurity. So Leah, tell us why this has been such a big deal among students. Food insecurity has kind of always been a big issue for students. Um, so a couple of years ago, there was a report released um, showing that there, um, 40% of GW students are food insecure. And um, since then, it doesn't really appear that things have gotten better. Uh, one thing that's happened uh, this past year is that the Safeway on, on the Mount Vernon campus is closed. That served as like an affordable grocery option for a lot of students who lived on the Vern, um, as well as for a lot of students who lived on Foggy Bottom and just wanted some affordable groceries. And so that kind of took a big hit for students. Um, but the general like consensus that I usually hear among students is just that food is expensive. Um, with the dining plan, students typically have around like 12 to $20 to spend per day. Um, and at a lot of D-World vendors, that's just not enough for, for three meals a day is what we hear. Um, so it's kind of always, it's been an ongoing issue for students, I would definitely say. What you've been talking to officials about is how they're dealing with comments from students. So can you kind of explain how they got those comments from students and, and what they're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So this past year, they for- the university formed um, a committee to kind of evaluate dining options on campus. Uh, and what they're doing right now is they're uh, evaluating the responses to a dining survey that was released uh, last semester. They kind of released this really comprehensive survey about kind of where on campus students get food from, uh, how much they spend on food, is it affordable, um, and things along those lines. And so right now what they're doing is they're kind of evaluating responses to that and brainstorming ways that they can address some of students' concerns about it. Uh, What I've heard from administrators is that um, when Thurston Hall opens up, Thurston Hall, um, the new Thurston Hall, uh, when they construct it in two years, is going to have like some sort of dining experience. It's not really clear whether that's going to be like a food court or a dining hall yet, but that's definitely in discussions. Um, and then what I've heard from Student Association President um, S.J. Matthews is that she is really looking forward to a dining hall opening on campus. That's one thing that she's kind of pushing for. Uh, she serves on the committee, uh, so she's kind of been pushing for a dining hall, a, a second dining hall to open up at the same time that Thurston Hall opens up. When you talk to students now, what do you keep hearing from them about their dining situation? Yeah, the big thing is just that it's expensive. So what we've heard from a lot of students is that, um, like, so I spoke with Elizabeth Benjamin, who is a freshman. She lives in Thurston, um, and she kind of told me about her dining situation, which I think is pretty common um, among a lot of students. So she said that she typically will buy groceries from Whole Foods and just kind of prepare them in her dorm. Um, but it's it's kind of difficult to get to Whole Foods, honestly, for her, because Thurston is kind of on the outskirts of campus, um, and going back and forth from Whole Foods, which is like a 10-minute walk with a bunch of groceries, is kind of difficult for her. She said when it's late at night and she just kind of wants to pick something up, not do a lot of cooking, the only options are really like 7-Eleven um, and carvings, which are just like not like super healthy foods. Um, so she said she, she kind of has a lot of trouble finding healthy foods, um, that, you know, the cheaper food is usually not very... Um, healthy for you and the healthier food is going to cost you like upwards of $10 for a meal. Well thank you for the update on the food insecurity situation and now we turn to some of the more legal developments at the university which you're also you've been reporting on. 
Leah, can you tell us about the lawsuit that was filed this week? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lawsuit filed this week in the U.S. District Court for D.C. Um, by a School of Medicine and Health Sciences professor who is suing the university, alleging that the MFA and the university breached its agreement with him, uh, with his employment. So the university gets sued all the time. Why is this really interesting? I think this is interesting because he, so he had been awarded a Fulbright scholarship and he had requested that he take a sabbatical for the semester um, to go and conduct the research in Belgium um, as part of his scholarship. And there, it really seems like he was kind of given some misleading information from both the university and the MFA regarding whether or not he would be paid his salary during, um, during his sabbatical. And so he had originally reached out to the MFA, letting him know that he was going on sabbatical, requesting that he could still be paid part of his salary while he was gone. Um, and what they told him was that he probably, that was probably a possibility for him because uh, the university's policy is that if you're a tenured professor, you can take a sabbatical and still be paid your salary. Um, and since he was a tenured professor, he um, thought that that was going to be a possibility for him. Um, but what's, act what's actually the case is that since he's employed by the Medical Faculty Associates, they are the ones who are responsible for paying his salary, not the university. Um, so even though the university might direct, like indirectly pay some of that because they're partnered with the Medical Faculty Associates, it's really that MFA that's responsible for um, giving him his salary. So what chance does this guy actually have of winning the case? Yeah, so what I've heard from experts uh, during my interviews today is that he probably doesn't have a huge chance of winning the case. Um, there's a good chance that the case could be settled just because it, sometimes it's cheaper for the university to settle a case um, confidentially than going through with it to trial. Um, since the university is a private institution and a lot of his, what he's alleging is based on um, his employment contracts, not necessarily like constitutional law or anything like that, um, he likely doesn't have too much of a case. And that's our roundup of weekly news. Thanks, Leah. This week on the culture segment, we're talking about go-go music. So Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., announced this week that go-go music would be the new official music of D.C., which has long been awaited. So Sydney, for those of us who don't know, what is go-go music? So go-go music is a form of funk music that originated in D.C. in the late 60s, early 70s. And it involves um, a lot of like jazz and blues influence as well. And a big part of it is it's mostly performed live. And there's a lot of like call and response with the audience. Are there any artists that are kind of really well known in go-go music? Yeah, so the godfather of go-go music is Chuck Brown. And he's kind of thought to be the first person to really pioneer this new genre. Um, so he's definitely like the number one name you'll hear when it comes to go-go music. And for a little taste of go-go music... This is Bustin' Loose by Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. So how did we get to this point? So basically, it was really big in the 70s, and then as gentrification became more and more prevalent in D.C., uh, it kind of like faded away, and there was actually um, kind of this rebirth and this movement called don't mute DC, and it all kind of started when a Metro PCS store was playing go-go music really loud, and a, like a newer DC resident like called and complained saying it was too loud, um, and it kind of 
started this whole conversation about how once DC became really gentrified, a lot of people were associating go-go music and like the nightlife around it with like violence and drug use. Um, and it was always thought to be kind of like like bringing violence about when, I mean, that really wasn't the case. It was just the music, but it was often associated with that. So um, it kind of got shut down after a while. And then once this whole thing happened last year with the Metro PCS store, um, then they started the Don't Mute DC movement, which has like led to where we are today. Yeah, and what has Mayor Bowser said about making go-go music the official music of D.C., and, like, what will that do for the community? So, by making it the official music of D.C., that means that there's going to be, like, money poured into um, preserving, like, the historical aspects of it and, like, the communities that it involves. So, it's not just, like, a symbolic thing, but it also will, like, make a difference monetarily. And what has the response been? It's been really good. Um, a lot of people showed up to the whole signing um, on February 19th, and there's just been like support across the city for go-go music finally being the official music. If you could recommend one song for people who are looking to get into go-go music, what would you recommend? I would say just start with anything off of Chuck Brown's like classic albums. Um, a big thing with go-go music is that a lot of it like wasn't recorded um so if you can like find a live show in dc that would be the best way to experience it but definitely start with chuck brown and another great place that you can look is uh gelman library has archives of a bunch of go-go music so you don't even have to go off campus yeah well thank you sydney thank you that's all for this week getting to the bottom of it is hosted by meredith roden and features culture editor sydney lee this podcast is produced by podcast host meredith roden music is produced by oak studio And a special thanks this week to Leah DeGroat for joining us.